This is Sacred Geometry International Radio, where we unveil the ancient mysteries. Exploring the interface between archaic wisdom and modern science, and the infinite possibilities emerging through their synthesis. We invite you to participate in this journey of discovery as we map the forgotten landscapes of the human experience. We are independent media, totally supported by listeners like you. Please help us carry on this work by subscribing to our members' area. This grants you access to our media archives, including past presentations, podcasts, articles, and other exclusive content. Please visit our store, where you'll find DVDs, publications, and other educational materials. Your purchases and donations help us to continue providing this paradigm-shifting knowledge to the world. At SacredGeometryInternational.com, we explore a rich and diverse syllabus of powerful and important subject matter, including sacred geometry and architecture, archaic mystery traditions, geomythology, catastrophism and earth change, archaeoastronomy, alternative science, and history. SacredGeometryInternational.com. The world is our classroom. This is Sacred Geometry International Radio, episode number one, originally recorded on August 6, 2012, and released today on January 7, 2013, featuring a conversation between independent scholar Randall Carlson and esoteric researcher Scott Onstott of SecretsInPlainSight.com. The title of today's presentation is The Science of Prophecy, Harmonic Design, and the Great Work. Special thanks go to Scott Onstott, Afua Richardson, Jacob Franklin, and Andrew Zucker for making this recording possible. Please enjoy the show, and if you would like to continue the discussion online, you're welcome to join us at sacredgeometryinternational.com. All right, well, uh, I'm wide open, Scott. I don't uh, have any... I don't, really, I don't really have a list of uh, questions prepared, but we can hopefully just um, pick each other's brains and have an interesting conversation yeah i really i really enjoyed our last conversation um oh as did i yes uh is there anything new that you've been working on or any new discoveries anything well i I just released i just released my volume two film and i'm really excited about that oh i'll bet you Uh, are and i i didn't know that otherwise i probably could have previewed it and, and it got some inspiration for our conversation but um so it is now available online. Yeah, it's available at uh, secretsinplainsight.com. Oh, okay. And, uh, and you know, uh, I'd be happy to send you a copy. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. That'd be I go great. into a lot of sacred geometry in the in the first half of the film. Uh-huh. I go into squaring the circle and um, some different derivations of the pyramid angle uh-huh. um, using different sacred geometries. The the slope of the Great Pyramid, that is. Yeah. That have you kind of settled on uh, one particular relationship being the the one that's most likely used or because there's so there's there's a number of different um, correlations there and I haven't really decided whether one uh, deserves predominance over another one you know for example the the, the relationship of the uh, slope of the pyramid to the base being the fee relationship um, seems to work pretty good 
But then also, yeah, yeah. so does the 22, the 7 over 22 ratio, or 7 over 11 works pretty good as well. Um, what, what are your and thoughts also, And that? also the, um, the height, if the height is 4, then half the base length is pi. Yes, So exactly. I think actually the pyramid is, is uh, almost like a hyper-dimensional object in that it encodes things on many different levels all at the same time. And um, it does that um, within a very narrow tolerance. You know, you can't have both pi and phi encoded exactly because the two numbers are, well, pi is transcendental and phi is ir- um, irrational. So you can never have them precisely correlated, but there's a very, very um, slight uh, error, if you will, or gap, mm-hmm. um, and that allows both of them to be encoded. And I found in uh, that I think most researchers would agree that the, the slope angle of the Great Pyramid is between 51 and 52 degrees. Yes. And uh, even, they, I think you could narrow it down even tighter, say maybe f- between 51 and a half and 52 and a lot of researchers say it's 51 degrees, 51 minutes, and 14 seconds mm-hmm. because they measured the um, the angle on one of those casing stones, which still exists. Right, right. And um, in sacred geometry, I found, I don't three or four different ways to get an angle very, very close to that. And um, I find that intriguing that it comes right out of this basic sacred geometry, you know. Mm-hmm. In in some of my uh, sacred geometry classes that I do, I'll have we'll do large scale drawings, fairly large format drawings, and I'll have um, students using the different methods. I'll you know have one of them using like a square grid. I'll have another one using the the phi relationship and having them drawing them. And then of course, when we compare the results, it, there's really no discernible difference because the margin of error between the various methods is is so slim. It's the thickness of your pencil line. Exactly. You know? So, so it's it's practically the same. I mean, it's kind of like splitting hairs to argue whether it's fifty one degrees, uh, fifty one minutes, or or fifty three minutes. You know, who cares? It's right. It's essentially the same. And then, and then of course you have the the geodetic aspect of it, um, which you've explored uh, as well, which. Just strikes me as being very intriguing because I'm still trying to wrap my head around this idea of, of of how that particular geometry seems to mesh with the um, you know the ratio between the equatorial circumference and the polar diameter of the Earth. Um, yeah, that's that's encoded with the number of forty three thousand two hundred. Yes, you know uh, because forty three thousand two hundred times the height of the Great Pyramid right. equals the um, polar. Uh, radius, yeah, and mm-hmm. forty three thousand two hundred times the uh, the base um, perimeter equals the um, Earth's equatorial circumference in miles. Yes, and you know the um, there are uh, um, slots outside the corners of the pyramid that apparently once held uh, some kind of probably cornerstones. There's nothing in them now, but you can actually, they're, they're quite easily discernible, at least on two corners. They're, they're easily discernible when you, when you actually visit the site. And, um, you know, I think, who was it? It was William R. Fix, I believe, in his work back in the 70s, where he discovered that there was actually two ways of measuring 
the pyramid's base, one that included the sockets and the other one that didn't. And he discovered that there was about a four-foot discrepancy between them, as I'm recalling. And um, by uh, using that 43,200 to 1 ratio, he discovered that <clears throat> when you expanded uh, the two, you actually ended up getting uh, the meridian distance as well as the equatorial distance. That difference appears to be encoded between the uh, the casing stones and the sockets. Have you seen photographs of the of the sockets? Are you I aware of those no, sockets? I, I haven't been there uh, in person to, to the Great Pyramid yet. I'd love to do that someday. Yeah, I should uh, get Cameron to send you uh, the photographs that I took of of the sockets so you can see them. Um, and yeah, they've they've been measured in several of the surveys and. Um, it's quite intriguing that if you, you know, you draw a minute of uh, equatorial latitude and a minute of equatorial longitude, the uh, the discrepancy between the two because of the oblateness of the Earth is is precisely the the discrepancy between the two ways of measuring the pyramid's base. One which gives you, you know, roughly around 756 feet um, point something. There's slight variations if you know between the four sides. And then the dimensions of the sockets, which are closer to 760 feet. And so you can actually get two uh, perimeter uh, base measurements, uh, depending on which, uh, which you use, which corners you use. And those discrepancies are precisely the, um, the discrepancy between a, a minute of equatorial latitude and a minute of equatorial longitude. Interesting. Now, isn't that amazing? It encodes <clears throat> them both at the same time. Yes, yeah. yes. And, and, and it just, you know, it... it just, you know, to me, it's just beyond coincidence um, that, that it does encode this geodetic and geometric information. Um, and, you know, the 43,200 is interesting because if you think about it, I mean, as you're aware, there's 86,400 seconds in a day. And on the moment of, of equinox, if you could actually pinpoint it down, and, and you could theoretically pinpoint an equinox down to a, a single second if you wanted. Um, but if you, it took a theoretical moment of spring equinox, then of course there's 43,200 seconds of darkness and 43,200 seconds of light at that moment. That's, that's right, yeah. So it's, it's, it's just remarkable. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of a rabbit hole kind of study. You start getting well, into the, this stuff. The, sun, the sun's diameter is 864,000 miles, <clears throat> and that's 99.9% accurate. Right, right. And, oh, yeah, and, and you're, you're probably aware um, that number shows up in a number of different places. You're, you're quite um, familiar with the work of John Michel, right? That's right. He's yeah. one of my favorite uh, writers. Yeah, he's, he's great. Uh, he was one of the people that really got me going on these studies back in the 70s when I discovered uh, the, uh, the view over Atlantis and the city of Revelation. Yeah, that diagram he did, um, I don't know what he calls it. I kind of call it the Earth-Moon diagram. Yeah, you yeah. Know, you know the one that's squaring the circle and it yes. encodes the, uh, the size of the moon and the Earth and all, all the numbers are in there as well. Yeah, I that, that really is mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm still as amazed over that as, you know, the day I first became aware of it. And that's one of the, my favorite exercises. When I when we do a sacred geometry class, I basically work up to that. I have people doing the squaring of the circle. I have them learning about the the ad quadratum, the ad triangulum. I have them doing learning how to draw the the 
the, the fee relationship, the golden section. And then when we get to that particular exercise, it sort of all comes together in, in one synthetic plan. It's usually, it, it usually gets quite a number of aha. Or, yeah. <clears throat> yes. Let me tell you about a, a, a piece of research I, I mm. present in, mm. in my volume two film. Um, and that is, I, I was able to, to derive the pyramid slope um, directly from squaring the circle, mm-hmm. um, and um, in a in a new novel way that I haven't seen before, and that gives a pyramid slope angle of fifty one point seven six degrees. Mm-hmm. And so um, I also correlated that because with the Louvre pyramid, um, the Louvre pyramid uh, has a slope of fifty one degrees. Uh, so it's sort of like a replica of the Great Pyramid, if you will. Right. But the, lo- the the location of the Louvre pyramid um, is such that the azimuth of the summer solstice sunrise is fifty one point seven six degrees true north. So that just really blew my mind. I looked up in the uh, there's a NOAA calculator online, um, uh-huh. and I you know put in the exact coordinates and the, the exact time of summer solstice sunrise and just blew my mind that it was uh, 51.76 degrees because it ties in with um, squaring the circle and the Great Pyramid slope. Um, and it, pre- it just, it's all connected. <clears throat> and you presume that was intentional, right? Well, that's a great question. Um, it seems like it was intentional, um, but I don't, I don't know that. I, don't, I haven't interviewed I.M. Pei, so I can't tell you for sure. Uh-huh. But, um, you know, it... It, it would kind of be hard to believe he wasn't conscious of that. Right. Uh, Which brings us to that, that question, the perennial question of how much of it is, is conscious and how much of this stuff is coming out of some kind of unconscious substratum of, of, of the human psyche, um, which I have never resolved that question to my satisfaction. I, I of course, think it's a, it's a bit of both. Um, and it does seem like... Certainly, I think the evidence existed in some of the various esoteric orders, Masonic orders, and so forth. That what may be operational on a on a more unconscious level amongst you know creative people that are tuned in and so forth may actually be something that's systematically taught to some extent. But I haven't made up my mind yet which. Which one is predominant in in what when we begin to find all of these extraordinary relationships and interconnections? What, what's your thought on that? Well, I feel I feel exactly the same uh, as you as, in that there seem to be conspiracies, um, but um, there's also things that are sort of too miraculous for conspiracy, and I, I tend to think that we sometimes we give these so-called conspirators just too much credit because. Um, let me give you another example. Um, take, for example, the distance between um, Stonehenge and the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. The, if you measure that in degrees in Google Earth, mm-hmm. um, which is something that we don't normally think of as measuring distances in degrees, but you can. Sure, why not? And um, the distance is 33.33 degrees. Interesting. And you know the you know Stonehenge is, uh, was begun I think um, in, more than five thousand years ago, mm-hmm. and and the Dome of the Rock you know on the Temple Mount there is very uh, that site is very ancient as well, 
And so, was that conspiracy? Um, I, I don't know. It seems to me like it's a conspiracy at a higher level, if you will. A conspiracy at a higher level, yes. It's almost as if there's some intrinsic blueprint that everything is hinged upon. And it's almost as if the process of revelation through the ages involves you know, human beings becoming aware to a greater or lesser degree uh, of that of that pattern that seems to be embedded in everything, uh, not only in, in the world around us, but in our own minds. Yeah, and what does that tell you about the nature of reality? You know, uh, it, it yeah. Doesn't it tell you that we're not living in a random um, physical materialist universe, as some scientists might, might say, but rather things are coordinated? in inexplicable ways such that it it suggests consciousness behind everything w- would you agree with that yes i would and i and i would agree that it, it definitely points us to the existence of a, of mystery with a capital m and and perhaps yeah. that's yeah. part of the the inherent design of this this whole thing is that we find ourselves in this in this embeddedness reality and the more the more we look at it, the more mysterious it becomes, and that there definitely seems to be layers, multiple layers to it. And the the, the deeper we look, um, the more invisible interconnections begin to reveal themselves. I know there's a sort of an old alchemical saying that I've encountered somewhere along the the, the way that says it is the the glory of God to hide things, and it is the glory of man to find them. And that seems, sort of seems to be what this, this the, the nature of this quest is all about, is finding the, the hidden architecture of creation. Yes, and it's, <clears throat> it's something I'm, I'm keenly interested in. You know, and it, it, it seems like there's a group of architects who may, are conscious of this stuff. Um, at least they're encoding it in their structures. And it's an open question whether they really know about it or not, but um, there could be a conspiracy also, you know, it, that's operative at the same time as, um, as we've said, that there's a mystery there with the numbers and the distances and the locations on the earth. Um, it's, all, it's all interconnected sort of in this, in this web, web or matrix. Yes. Yeah, I first encountered the, the use of the term web when I was reading some theosophical stuff back in the in the in the eighty or seventies actually, and they kind of referred to the to the the invisible web of the universe, um, and that certainly seems to be an adequate metaphor for uh, this kind of information and knowledge, and it does, certainly does seem to be pointing to something that um, you know pervades this reality we inhabit, and. And revelation seems to be uh, a process of uncovering this this invisible architecture. Um, you know, when we start talking about prophecy, it almost seems that, in a sense, it's the um, it's the application of the, these type of interconnections to the uh, to the measurement of time itself, as we talked about in our previous conversation. Um, because we can, of course, see that these numbers are not only embedded in the structure of space; they're embedded in the structure of time as well you know we when we're talking about you know you, you mentioned 864,000 miles being the diameter of the sun and we're talking about 86,400 seconds in the in one revolution of the earth on its axis relative to the sun 
Um, you know, and, and of course, the, the whole process goes from there. You know, we can talk about 2,160 degrees being the total number of degrees measuring the cube. When and or 2,160 miles being the measure of the lunar diameter, or 2,160 years being the measure of a platonic month, or you know one age of the great year, or 21,600 nautical miles in the circumference of the Earth, and so it goes. We we have this uh, this this canon of numbers that so seems six to six times six times six equals two sixteen. Yeah, the cube the cube of six equals two hundred and sixteen, right? And so <clears throat> we have the the same numbers measuring both time and space, which perhaps suggests some kind of a uh, an, uh, a higher reality from which time and space, as we experience them, are both emanations, and somehow or another they both manifest these same canon of sacred numbers repeatedly, redundantly. <clears throat> and they're encoded in our units of measure. Yes, encoded in our Which units of measure. Absolutely. Uh, there's a um, a gentleman named Lawrence Edland who uh, sent me um, an amazing fact that he discovered, and that is that if you compare the distance from the sun to the earth with the uh, with light speed, um, mm-hmm. you uh, sorry. If you, if you compare the distance from the sun to the earth with one light year, mm-hmm. that's the same as one inch is to a mile. And that's 99.9% accurate. Isn't that extraordinary? So, yeah. I mean, so it, in a way you could say, well, maybe the mile and the inch were related in this by basing it on, on light. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, we have other... other uh, evidence that um, relates to that system, like um, if you look at the equatorial circumference of the Earth, uh, John Michelle and Robin Heath show that the, uh, the distance around the Earth is, is uh, it's the number of days in a year mm-hmm. times, the, times the number of degrees in a circle times 1,000 feet. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's super accurate also. Yeah. Uh, I think it's 99.99% accurate. Mm-hmm. And that suggests, well, maybe that's where they defined the foot from, right? Yeah. But how can, you know, all of these things are are too uh, brilliant, really, for just one one of the units to have been based on something. Because they're all interrelated. You know, the inch and the foot and the mile are, are all related with simple uh, factors, you know, 12 and 5, 2, 8, 0. And, and they all ultimately relate to the human scale as well. I mean, you know, we, we all are told as children how the foot was derived from presumably King Edward or somebody, you know, deciding to stand, yeah. standardize the, the length of the foot according to his own foot. But, um, you know, when I when I disclose some of this information and I get a somewhat skeptical response, you know, well, you know, you can, you're just playing with numbers or, you know, the, the fact that the moon is... is um, you know, 2,160 miles, but only when you measure it in miles, and that's totally arbitrary. But then, you know, I raise the question, is it is it totally arbitrary? Because, you know, when we talk about the foot, the mile, the inch, of course, we're all talking about human-derived units of measurement. You know, the, the mile, of course, is ultimately based on a 1,000 human paces. And, um, 
you know, we find these relationships seem to, to pertain when we use this system of metrology that does relate to the human scale, which to me is what I find fascinating is how these units of measurement seem to um, relate on the one hand to the human scale, but on the other hand to the cosmic scale. And it's almost as if these these dimensions and these proportions found in the cosmic domain are somehow then manifested in the in the human scale of phenomena. Yeah, well, as above, so below, yeah. and, and that principle just carries through, and and we resonate with these larger cosmic structures, which are based on number, and and we have that same thing happening here on our scale. Yeah, and here, like here, here's an example of an interesting relationship. You you may have encountered this. I I think I just discovered this on my own rather than actually seeing it published anywhere. But you know, in the the account of New Jerusalem. Um, you know, it's described as being uh, 12,000 furlongs, and which turns out, if you actually do the math, turns out to be 1,500 miles. You know, the city lieth four square, the length, the height, and the breadth of it are equal 12,000 furlongs, and you end up with 1,500 miles. Well, what's interesting is if you take the ratio of the earth to the, uh, to the holy city, you discover that it's 5.28, which is essentially the relationship between the human pace and the human foot. Um, you know, based on a, a pace, a mile of 1,000 paces, then each of those paces is on average 5.28 feet. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I never knew that. Yeah, so, so we're, here we have that relationship between the human pace and the human foot embedded in the relationship between the earth and the holy city of 1,500 miles. It's precisely 5.28. So I kind of find that interesting because on the one hand you've got the human foot, which is, you know, our basically, literally our, our link to the earth. And then we have the human pace, which is now, um, you know, the process by which we move about the face of the earth. Um, so yeah, I, I find that quite interesting. Um, and, in, and in our, you know, further relationships uh, in there, you know, if you look at the... Um, the 1,500 miles compared to the to the diameter of the moon, then you discover that you know that the difference between them is uh, you know precisely 660 miles, and of course the furlong is 660 feet. So if you translate the furlong into inches, then you discover that 660 feet is 7,920 inches. So the inch is to the furlong as the mile is to the diameter of the Earth. I don't know if you that that may have been one that I no I didn't know that yeah inches I think, to the furlong yeah the mile is to the diameter of the earth wow yes. yeah that, I guess that's one that I stumbled upon in my own research I don't think I've ever seen that published anywhere but yeah I mean it, the math works out the, the so that's, it's incredible I've actually taken a class out into a large parking lot and we've measured out a furlong and marked it in chalk on the parking lot and then marked one inch on there. So like I said, there's there's the relationship. If that inch was one mile, then this furlong is the diameter of the Earth. It's a great visualization. It is, and it helps people to kind of get the picture. Because um, well, the, the term, I'm, and the, go ahead. Well, you know, it seems that so many of these phenomena are could be described as scale invariant. You know, in the fact that that this relation holds. You know, you can say we've got a proportion here. Uh, earth to mile equals furlong to inch. And so we, we now have this proportion going on. And we find that same type of proportion, you know, in the measurement of time. Um, 
you know, so many of the, I think as we talked about before, so many of the ancient cultures used to had a sacred calendar of 360 days, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And, well, well, if you, if you take a 360-day calendar and translate that into the number of hours, it turns out to be 8,640 hours for the ideal sacred year. So, And that ties in with the, um, the uh, what is it called, decans, the, the 36 week, uh, 36 10-day weeks in the ancient Egyptian calendar. 36, let me think about that. 36 10-day weeks. Okay, so a 10-day week then would have 240 hours. And 30, well, yeah, there we go. 360 days. Yeah, uh, so, so there's our 8,640 again. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Pretty wild. One stuff. thing I, I noticed is that 528 comes right out of the, the Ennead. So if you take a circle and you divide it into nine parts uh-huh. and, you, and you number it you know, all the way around and you draw lines between 5, 2, and 8, it makes an equilateral triangle. Okay. And so this is like... Uh, Sort of like the eye of God, if you will, the, the triangle at the top of the pyramid. Um, it, it's this harmony between five, two, and eight mm-hmm. that comes comes out of this uh, this ennead. And in my research, I've I've also correlated um, the ennead as a basis for understanding why the decimal system is fundamental um, to the to the structure of the universe. Um, we think the decimal system is arbitrary, but it actually, all of these numbers we've been talking about work like 86,400 seconds in a day compared to the 864,000 mile solar diameter that works because we're using base 10. Mm-hmm, right. And, and it wouldn't work in another base. So um, uh, there's something to the decimal system and how it correlates with, with the atom. Um, because there's a guy named Peter Plichta who wrote a book called God's Secret Formula, and he's a physicist and a chemist. And he realized that there are um, exactly 81 stable atoms in the universe. All the other atoms beyond uh, that number are radioactive, and they, they eventually, in time, split into one of the 81 atoms. And, of course, 81 is 9 times 9. Mm-hmm. So if, if you have... If you have nine numbers, all of the possible relationships between them is nine by nine, or 81. Mm-hmm. And so in some way, the decimal system is, is really possibly what the ancient Egyptians were encoding with their uh, whole system of nine gods. Uh-huh. Uh, perhaps, they were, perhaps they were giving us this important piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, the ancient Egyptians used a decimal system. So um, I think this is this is key. You know, it, it, the, there's something about the structure to reality uh, working on this on base ten, mm-hmm. and isn't it isn't it incredible that we're using base ten now, and that we understand feet, inches, and miles, and so on? We're still using these systems, and even the metric system, um, one could say that it is uh, encoding these things as well. Uh, for example, the um, the latitude of the Great Pyramid um, encodes the speed of light. You know, it, it's 29.9, and I don't remember all the numbers, but it's mm-hmm. exactly the same numbers in the speed of light 
as expressed in meters per second. Mm-hmm. So this seems kind of crazy that um, when when people first hear this, how how could it be that the Great Pyramid encodes the speed of light? That presupposes that the ancients were using the metric system in the second, and that they had mapped the Earth using GPS coordinates, the system that we use today. Yeah. But nevertheless, it does encode the speed of light. You just look at it in Google Earth, and you'll see. So um, that's quite a an amazing fact. Yeah, and of course, the metric system was ultimately geodetic. I mean, it was derived from what one hundred one one hundred thousand part of of the meridian arc uh, along, I, I believe, along the Paris meridian, if if memory serves me correct. And you've probably noticed that the relationship between the the mile and the kilometer is is very close to the to the golden section relationship. That's it's not right. Exact, I think it's it, like um, is it ninety nine percent? Yeah, I think um, I think it's about. I think one, it's ninety ninety eight or ninety nine percent correct. Yeah, let's see. One uh, one kilometer uh, times right. phi right. equals one mile. Yeah. Pretty darn close. It, it yeah. works out to be about one point six zero nine, I think. But it's very close. I mean, it's close enough for for government work, as That's they right. say. If you take the reciprocal of the speed of light, mm-hmm. uh, that would be the the um, the amount of time it takes light to go one meter. The uh, the number is point zero zero, and I think there's eight zeros, and then it says three three three. Uh huh. I find that interesting also. Yeah. It's encoding the the 33, if you will. Yeah. And then, of course, um, we have the whole, uh, the the numbers that emerge from, you know, the, the, the um, length of the various ages as expressed uh, in the king lists of Sumeria and in the, the Vedas, the length of the yugas and the kalpas. Um, and how they might be linked with the processional cycle, which is, have you looked into that to any extent? Yes, the the yugas are all using the same canon of numbers mm-hmm. as the, um, like what you've shown with the polyhedra, mm-hmm. and with the, uh, like they correlate with John Michel's um, yes. numbers from the Earth-Moon diagram. Right. Uh, and so... That they're all using these same numbers, and all the numbers are divisible by nine. All of them divisible by nine, and I and I like to point out again to the to the skeptics that think that these numbers are arbitrary. That well, you know, generally uh, modern astronomers will put the rate of uh, precessional motion of the Earth's axis at a, at fifty arc seconds per year, which you know, if you do the math, comes out to be twenty five thousand nine hundred and twenty years. And usually in most textbooks, I think it's rounded off to about you know twenty six thousand, but twenty five thousand nine hundred twenty, of course, is the um, sort of the, the the traditional sacred number used to represent that that particular cycle. And uh, you know, once you start exploring the ramifications of that particular number, it gets very interesting in that. You know, we find many uh, representations of the, you know, four seasons of the great year represented by the four fixed signs of the zodiac. And if you divide that cycle into quadrants, of course, then you get um, 6,480 years uh, per quadrant. Um, 
And that's the sum of the angles in the dodecahedron, I believe. In the dodecahedron, that's exactly right, which was, you know, Plato's idealized concept for the shape of the universe itself. Um, so the fact that, that, that those numbers emerge from the dodecahedron uh, uh, is quite interesting. And then, um, you know, the dodecahedron is composed of 12 pentagonal faces, and the angle of each edge of those pentagonal faces is 108 degrees. And that, again, is one of those redundant numbers that occurs over and over again. I find it, um, you know, has, you've probably encountered this somewhere along the line as well, that if you, um, I, I tell students to envision it this way, imagine, you know, you've got a, a string of uh, meditation beads with, with 108 beads on them, right? And... Um, now imagine that instead of 108 beads, or imagine that those beads, each one of those beads is the moon. Well, with 2,160 miles to the diameter of the moon times 108 beads gives you 233,280 miles, which is virtually the, the mean uh, distance between the Earth and the moon. And likewise, if you take that 864,000 mile diameter of the sun, multiplying it times 108, you get 93,312,000, which again is virtually the uh, the mean distance between Earth and sun. So here you have um, that number embedded right there in those proportional relationships between, so you have uh, solar, uh, uh, Earth-moon distance to moon diameter equals Earth-sun distance to sun diameter. And then in turn, um, if you take the 7,920 of the uh, Earth's diameter times 109, then you actually come very close to the diameter of the sun. So it's a little bit off, but nonetheless, the, you know, I, as we talked about before, it's, it's, <clears throat> it seems to be the, uh, uh, the difference between the idealized universe according to the cosmic or divine blueprint in the actual universe as manifested, that there's always going to be these slight discrepancies, but behind the discrepancies, <clears throat> you can uh, discern the, the idealized mathematics that seems to tie the whole system together. Though I think that the discrepancy is part of the system in that if you look at the Pythagorean comma, you know, mm -hmm. the, the small interval in music um, that keeps the the just intervals from being, um, I should say it differently. Um, the Pythagorean comma, if you take um, a, a circle of fifths and, you, and you, you do all the fifths, which is the most harmonious interval, mm -hmm. and you go up, uh, I think it's 12 octaves, um, uh, then there's going to be a slight gap. It's not going to, the, the last note isn't going to be precisely 12 octaves above the first one, there's going to be a little gap, and that's called the Pythagorean comma. Mm -hmm. And um, this is sort of like the gap between the real and the ideal. You know, and I, I liken it to the difference between the Fibonacci sequence mm -hmm. and, the, and, and phi or phi. Right. Because in the real world, um, like plants only have a discrete number of seeds, they can't have a fractional number of seeds. Mm -hmm. And so a sunflower makes a, a, a Fibonacci spiral, which is very much like a, a golden spiral, but it, it's quantized in discrete units. 
And so when you do the math, there's a slight gap between that and the perfect idealized golden spiral. But it's very slight. Uh-huh. And so there, in the real world, we always have this, this gap, you know, between uh, the real and, and, the, and the perfect ideal. I'm just sort, sort of emphasizing what you're, you're saying yeah. there in you know, giving this example. Well, you're an architect, right? That's right. Yeah, I, I'm not. A, I'm not a licensed architect. But you draw. But, um, you draw blueprints. I I do, and I te- I teach architects how to use uh, AutoCAD and, uh-huh. and other oh, software. Oh, that's it. Yeah. So, so this idea between the, the discrepancy between the the ideal and the real um, is is a certainly a familiar concept to you. As a builder, I'm certainly aware of it. Um, you know because. You know, as we um, strive to get ever increasingly improved levels of craftsmanship, the idea is, you know, we strive to get as close as we can to the ideal that's expressed in the plans. And, of course, always feeling like we're falling short. But nonetheless, you know, that's, that's what we're striving for. And then, of course, you know, once the work is completed, then the, um, the vagaries of the, the real world begin to come into play. And over a period of time... One sees uh, an ever increasing uh, divergence between the ideal and the real. As wood uh, absorbs moisture or dries out, exactly, uh, it, it moves, and then the, the structure, uh, you know, settles, and exactly. so you end up having uh, discrepancies, a little gap but, between the, the plan and the reality. But yeah? but nonetheless, you know, by by studying the reality, you can work backwards and and begin to understand or appreciate what what the idealized plan would have been. And I think that's what we're doing when we, when we look at the, the model of the universe and the model of the world is we're beginning to see these, these harmonic patterns emerging that link all of these phenomena together. And we're beginning to see, I mean, I, it seems to me that we're just, you know, the, the kinds of things that you and I and other researchers are involved in, in, in trying to uncover these, these hidden linkages is, you know, we're basically just at the very beginning of something here. Uh, a re- perhaps a recovery of, of a lost science that may have been understood in antiquity to a much greater level. But, you know, John Michel seemed to imply that it was becoming, that, that, you know, that there were, if you will, epochs of prophecy in which, for whatever reason, people seem to become more in tune with with the hidden realities of nature and by discerning those hidden realities you not only get a sense of 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 the past for example you get you get a sense of the of the future because by understanding that time is cyclical or cyclical as as the uh, ancient peoples understood it rather than a strictly linear phenomena then you can kind of understand that there's going to be this repetition or reoccurrence of, of similar type of events. Um, you know, when we look at the annual year as an example, of course, we find that there's a, a, a very discernible, predictable pattern in the changing of the seasons. Now, we know that in about six weeks, we're going to be feeling the the temperature on average cooling off discernibly, and we will, you know, be going through a predictable pattern of seasonal change and you know autumn will then be followed by winter and of course up where you are you know there's going to be a much more uh, noticeable 
seasonal change than where I am. Although actually being on the coast, maybe you don't get that so extreme. But uh, well, yeah, I'll tell you. Yesterday we were out making sandcastles with our whole island for our annual sandcastle day, and uh, it was really hot. And then towards the the uh, late afternoon, it, the clouds came in and it suddenly started raining, and we're like, "Oh, there went summer." There went summer. <laughs> today, today it's cold already. Interesting, yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, <clears throat> my point being, though, is that you know, you you even though the pattern is is highly similar from year to year, once you break it down to a to a much finer resolution, you of course then begin to lose the predictability. I mean, we can say with confidence that four weeks from now it's going to be generally cooler than, than it is today. Um, but on what day, you know, like here in, in uh, North Georgia, the question would be like, on what day will the first freeze of the year occur? Well, you know, we don't know exactly when that's going to occur. It varies from year to year. But there's a larger scale general predictability. But then within that, there's finer degrees of revolution where, where predictability breaks down. But this seems to be similar to the idea of, of prophecy in that understanding that there's a larger scale cycle, cyclical structure of time. We know that, or the prophet apparently would know that, um, you know, that the cosmic seasons are changing. And that, you know, within that, we, we could uh, define certain key points like, uh, you know, in, in the latitude where I grew up, you know, what, an important key point would be, you know, when is the first freeze going to occur for the year because then you know everybody's got to bring their plants in and you know when is the first thaw going to occur in spring you know these become significant uh uh demarcation points within an otherwise more or less continuum and um in the cosmic cycles in the larger cycles of the great year those little points of discontinuity are actually relevant to the human scale, um, interpreted as catastrophic events. That, you know, the changing of the cycles, the changing of the seasons on the, on the larger scale, um, those little, what would be points of discontinuity for us, you know, uh, or, you know, we could look at it as, um, okay, we're now pretty much in the thick of hurricane season down here in the southeast. Um, you know, and this will be usually last from about July to the end of September. So within that season, we know that there's going to be hurricanes and there's going to be potential for regional catastrophes or local catastrophes in that particular interval. I think the, that perhaps the, uh, you know, the prophets who foretold various kinds of events, some which could, could certainly be uh, interpreted as catastrophic, uh, you know, in the apocalyptic literature and so forth, we're essentially accessing this substratum of, of temporal awareness that um, they knew that the changing of the cosmic season brought certain particular kinds of events, uh, which you know we would think of as being world revolutions, uh, perhaps both in a social sense and in a natural or geological sense. With it, and, and of course, you know, scientifically now we can certainly verify that. There are seems to be regular upheavals in the natural order where, where where the old balance of nature is completely overturned in a in a geological eye blink. So what interests me particularly is how these events, which are now being uh, overwhelmingly documented to have happened uh, throughout the history of the planet, how accurately or how effectively can they be described according to these uh, the, to the same canon of sacred numbers that we're looking at. And in that regards, I've noticed that what, what is generally referred to by, um, 
you say glaciologists as the late Wisconsin Ice Age, which certainly would have affected the area that you live in, uh, generally seemed that there was a major shift in the climate from a uh, more or less interglacial warmth to full glacial cold. And this last shift from warmth to cold seems to be, as the dates become accumulating, it seems to be honing in very precisely on about 26,000 years ago, or essentially one cosmic year, one one great year as, as we think of it in, in terms of the processional motion. And then the termination of the Ice Age, you know, is is, is dated at the uh, what is called the um, the uh, Balling Alarod Younger Dryas boundary, uh, in which there was a, an extreme environmental, global environmental signal propagated uh, that involved a spasm of extreme warming followed by a return to full glacial cold. And the date that is now being given for that is 12,900 years, which falls so closely to the, to the 12,960, uh, which is, is half the processional cycle that it, it, it just is remarkable to me. Um, and in fact, in, in reading traditional accounts, apocalyptic literature, and going back again to the, to the canon of sacred numbers and the idea of the, the processional cycle, it had seemed to me that 12,960 uh, was an auspicious date, which I had presented in, in lectures and classes as long ago as 20 years, in which I suggested that perhaps um, that will be the date uh, that will, will define some of these key transition points from one uh, world age to the next world age. So in a sense, it was quite gratifying to me to see that within the last, oh, four or five years, as, as dating has improved uh, for these various, uh, you know, these various nonlinear events, if you will, that now we're, we're uh, the date being published for that major transition is, is 12,900 years. Um, and the fact that we see that the last phase of what they refer to as the late Wisconsin Ice Age seemed to have been inaugurated uh, Almost precisely, you know, one cosmic cycle or one great year ago, um, and and we see that, for example, it, uh, the 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 what appears to be the final phase of mass extinctions in us of the Australian megafauna seems to have been commensurate with the um, uh, you know the major transition in the northern hemisphere that brought us from a period of relative warmth to the the full the last cycle of full glacial cold. Also, dates um, for the last appearance of, of Neanderthal uh, on the planet used to be given as about 30,000 years, but they keep finding younger and younger ex examples of Neanderthal remains, and it is now, I think the youngest Neanderthal may, remains is now being dated to about 26,000 years. So this is just examples to me of... of uh, you know, empirical evidence emerging from the scientific point of view that would seem to confirm um, perhaps what, what ancient folks already knew was that there is this cyclical nature of time and that within this these unfolding cycles there are, there are these discrete points of continuity where a lot of action is compressed into a very short period of time. And uh, perhaps these could be thought of as nodal points within the architecture of time. And the way we experience it, it seems to suggest that, um, you know, that these these points of discontinuity from, from the human standpoint could be interpreted as, as catastrophic. So uh, I don't know if to, to what extent you may have looked into any of that yet, but that's some of the ongoing research that I kind of got 
led into um, when I started trying to understand global change in the in the context of, of a great year model and using the sacred numbers as an effort to try to pinpoint when events may have happened. And, and you know, it's, it's the same thing. You know, again, you, there may be a slight discrepancy, um, you know, on either side of the idealized date. But nonetheless, it does seem that just like with these patterns in space, um, you know, that they that they do um, fall very, very close to being um, measured within uh, periods of time that are defined by these sacred numbers. So, you know, that yeah. would be some in- some research that I'd you know, be happy to share with you at some point if you find that interesting. Oh, I find that very interesting. And I think that, um, that the fact that um, these units of measure that we have today are uh, encoding these numbers indicates that people used to understand this and we are merely uh, re- remembering this now or re- recovering it. Right. And, and um, I, I know that, um, you know, Homo sapiens have had the same physiology for in excess of 100,000 years and yet our civilization supposedly began uh, just 10,000 years ago. Exactly. So uh, um, I think that that we, we probably had civilizations that, that were completely wiped out and that there's no trace of them now because maybe they're underwater. Sure. Um, and so people have been this way before. And, and it's, it, it's this strange thing where we, we go through 10,000 years and we finally start figuring things out. And then we might have another cataclysm and have to start at ground zero again and sort of work our way up again. This concludes part one of this recording. If you would like to hear this conversation in its entirety, please subscribe to our members' area to gain access to an ever-expanding archive of exclusive content documenting this paradigm-shifting information as demonstrated by leading-edge scholars, scientists, explorers, and other evolutionary thinkers. For more information, please visit sacredgeometryinternational.com.